This is episode 67 of the Immunology Podcast, Vascular and Immune Aging with Dr. Anjali Kusumbe. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rapp. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast. We have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Anjali Kusumbe from the University of Oxford on the podcast to talk about her research on tissue and tumor microenvironments. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first... It's time. IUIS 2023 is happening next week in Cape Town, South Africa. We are so excited because we are attending and we will be covering the meeting. Uh, you can also visit IUIS2023.org if you want to check out the program. And we do hope to see you soon, especially for those attending. How exciting, Jason. I how know, excited are you? right? I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. In, a month, in just a week, we're going to already be there covering day two. Oh, uh, so exciting. So exciting. I'm, I'm packing like five books for the plane. Five books. Oh, come on. It's not that long. But don't you have a Kindle? Like, who does I know, that's books? what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm also, oh, the thing yeah. is, I like to collect hardback books or, or sometimes. So I'm going to buy the Kindle versions of the hardbacks because I can't bring that many on the plane. Oh, yes. No, not ridiculous at all. That's fine. I understand. Why? If it wasn't because... I have to catch up on Brandon Sanderson's uh, uh, Stormlight Chronicles with the most recent book that's like a thousand pages and it won't fit oh, in wow. a suitcase. And so I'm yeah. going to just get the Kindle as well and, and work through it. I'm also going to watch uh, the... Uh, this uh, uh, V Academy or V University, the spinoff of the boys thing from Amazon oh, Dark okay. Superheroes. I'm going to watch that whole thing. I know that you're not very uh, familiar with transatlantic flights, but it is not a hundred, uh, you know, uh, hour flight. It is just like, I don't know, 10 hours or something. No, so, it's 16. 16. Well, 16. 10, 16, potato, potato. I can literally, I can literally, well, not counting sleep because I will sleep. I can binge eight episodes. I can binge an eight episode season and get eight hours of sleep. There you go. Yes, please do get some sleep. Do get some sleep. I, I... Oh, it goes overnight. I will. Absolutely. But I, I absolutely, I've done transatlantic all the time. I mean, I, it's not that bad. It's, it's the, it's the North and the, it's the East, West and North, South combined. That's going to do it. I know. I've done that many times in my life. You know, Argentina is in a different, it's both hemispheres. Yeah. It's literally on the other side. Very exciting. So what do you do on these long flights? I do try to sleep as much as I can. Mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, usually I do read something or I watch some of the movies. I like, oftentimes I have like movies that are in cinema that are not in the platform. So it was a good place to find those movies that are nowhere in the, in the subscription uh, platform. So. There you go. So it's the same concept. I just want to catch up on the show that my wife doesn't want to watch. And so I'm going to do that on an airplane. <laughs> Very nice. I will be probably... Yeah, I think I have a day a day flight, so it's gonna. I, mean, I will have to find something to do because sleeping is not the best. No, don't sleep during the day. Although you don't, have, that'd be really bad because you don't have a time zone change either. So you'd just be punishing. Yeah, yeah. So well, and but I mean, between you still have something else to know. And two days is it? Have Thanksgiving up there? It's Thanksgiving time here. So so so, do you guys do turkey? In the Netherlands at all as a no, thing? No, you don't no. eat the big, world's biggest, stupidest bird. We already have a turkey, like a country. So that's a thing we have enough with that. 
Well, actually, no, sorry. It's not called Turkey anymore. They want to be called, what is it, Turkaya? They want to change their the name to a more in, indigenous name. Fair. Like like Chechia, you know, it's not Czech Republic anymore. I don't know if you had that memo. Uh, that, I, America doesn't care. <laughs> I know. <laughs> just kidding. We try. I mean, I didn't say it. That was you. You just, you Sorry. just finally, you just, you know, that was your confession. We're really, we're really bad at name changes. Your world. You just heard it from the from the horse's <laughs> mouth. They don't care. No, I, I have heard that they are trying to do that. Yes. Um, uh, but well, we'll see if it catches. I think I yeah. think Cheche has, has caught on. At least over here, uh, I think it's not that hard. But yeah, so you're making some gravy with a turkey. I don't know what you guys do. You know, so we like to inject it with butter and then put some butter on the skin and then stuff it. Oh my god! And, you, and then you roast it in the oven, or you can do it on the barbecue. Nice. Oh, that that tasty. There's a tryptophan that it has. Oh, yeah, yeah. Has that's a lot no of... more tryptophan than the average food. It's just you eat so much on Thanksgiving, you get the food comas. Good, good. Well, don't sleep until don't miss your flight because you're in a. Food That'd coma. be a really long sleep. <laughs> yeah, like a two dayer. That's that's tough. No, we're doing Hanukkah early because a bunch of people can't make it for Hanukkah, but they're here for Thanksgiving. Oh, I see. Hanukkah a few weeks early, so I'm going to do a Thanksgiving Hanukkah, which has happened actually once. The year my child was born was the first time there was a Thanksgiving. Oh, because that changes. Hanukkah moves every year on the lunar calendar. And so like only once in a thousand years can Thanksgiving occur. And so we totally had a Thanksgiving the year it happened when my son was born. And we put him we, we put him in a turkey outfit because he was only four weeks old and put him on a platter as a turkey. And then uh, we... Uh, had people guess the weight of the turkey versus our child. And if you got got them right, like which one's the turkeys and which one's the child, you want a prize. All right. Because our son was like 10.9 pounds or 12, no, our son was like 12 pounds at that point, And the turkeys were like 10 and 11. And so like- 12 pounds. That's like about six kilos for, for the rest of the world listening. Yeah. All right. Okay. And when is Hanukkah this year supposed to be? Uh, Like December 8th or something. Okay. I'm December here for part 8th, of it. The, I have another work. The, the day of Our Lady of the Conception. So you're gonna you're gonna enjoy the 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 holiday together with the with the Catholics. You know we. Who's a what what? There's like in in Spanish Spanish countries uh, in Latin America as well. We have the eighth of December is the day of the Sacred Conception. I don't know how it's called. Something about the Virgin. <laughs> Oh my God! Well, I just, I just, I think I just um, lost. You know, I just offended half of our uh, of our Catholic. Um, Let's celebrate the listeners. I don't know. I just oh, we have yes, yeah. to have Santa Claus, which is also fun. You know, because this guy comes apparently in a steamboat from Madrid. Don't ask. That's how it is. A and brings and brings candy to the children of the Netherlands. So that's why we get in early December. Okay, I think we should move on to the to the uh, talk with our uh, papers today because I have some cool science. We get in trouble. Our listeners are here not for, uh, you know, our <laughs> nonsense, but for commentary. the science. All right, yes. all right. Well, well, let's get to the chase, please. You want me to talk about herpes? I'll talk to you about herpes. <laughs> to keep <Sure>. on the <laughs> Oh my gosh, sure. <laughs> Hit me. Okay. Bring it on. Um, I'm listening. All right. Yay. This is uh, in Nature on published November 8th. Latest human, latent human herpes virus 6 is reactivated in CAR T cell therapy or CAR T cells. Our first author is Caleb A. Larrow and last author is Ansuman T. Satpathy. All right. So human herpes virus 6. 
is a common infection. People get it all the time when they're young. It causes uh, a roseola in kids, but in a certain percentage of people, it integrates into their DNA. And they've seen in some people with CAR T therapies, they've seen some types of viral reactivations and viral encephalitis, and they have indeed occasionally seen this virus pop up. And so what they're trying to do is say, hey, does HHV6 actually reactivate in CAR T cells or in CAR T therapy? Is this in the cells themselves or is this like, like what's happening, right? Because you have two hypotheses. So we know HHV6 appears in people after CAR T therapy and we know people have it, right? And some percentage of integration. So is it that the CAR T's are just causing, for whatever reason, other cells to have HHV6 reactivate, and in, or is it in the T cells, the CAR T cells themselves? Now, something important to know is that this virus does infect T cells to an extent, um, and it has receptors associated with T cells that it activates through. So they take a bunch of old sequencing data from Serratus and start cranking it through using some sophisticated data techniques that can detect, uh, you know, viral from human DNA because there's some confounding there because of some overlap. And so they have to do some fancy data stuff. And they show, again, with the, what they see, 1% of the population is chromosomally integrated HHV6 when that, that's previously been shown to transmit following Mendelian pr principles. Um, and so what they look at is they actually see that um, under just taking this reference set of cultured T cells, not CAR T therapies, that they can see CAR T cells kind of done under, or regular T cells done under standard anti-CD3, CD28, you know, stimulation paradigm. Some of them indeed pop up H HV6, and then those start cranking and infect the rest of the dish. So that's one thing they show. And then they show that if you have CAR T cells, so they did some CAR T cells with culture and um, took some peripheral blood mononuclear cultures that had HHV6 in them, and they saw the CAR T cells uh, with introduction, and then this is old data, activated the HHV6 as well. So they're seeing the CAR Ts for some reason can do this. But then they found that what really what was happening is the CAR T cells had rare populations that were HHV6 positive. And so it wasn't just any old CAR T can make some blood or some white cells that have HHV6 and it reactivate. The reactivation is actually coming from the CAR T cells themselves. And so they mapped this all out. Um, Again, looking at data, looking at peripheral blood mononuclear cells, ones that have HHV6, ones that don't, introduction of the virus. There's this OXO40, which is a receptor, and so they can use that as a marker of cells that are able to be infected. And so they also show that it works in vivo um, and from tissue donors who've had CAR T or other things that have happened to them. And then so they looked at this in trials of people and saw the same pattern. And then they actually kind of connect this uh, and they show that it can spread in culture and that allogenic CAR-Ts can also reactivate it. So that's fun. 
And then finally, they show that you can use a small molecule inhibitor, who's I'm trying to get the name here. They can use a small molecule inhibitor that's known to affect this, and that can prevent the spread. So if you were to uh, foscarnet, so if you had a foscarnet to the CAR T's as you were expanding them and then making them and then add that to the culture, the CAR T's no longer spike their HHV6 and thus no longer transmit it to other cells. And, and that's it, essentially. So essentially, both host cells and cell therapy products can amplify, can carry this virus and thus transmit an HHV6 burst, which has downstream negative effects in patients potentially. They didn't directly link every encephalitis episode um, with HHV6, but the HHV6 causes encephalitis, and so they're wondering if um, this is going on together. Hmm. As a cause of it. Okay, so that's that's kind of scary. Then you can you not only get the so you already have some cells that are infected, and then through the culture and the activation of the production of the, pr the product, you get them all infected, maybe. And right, because there's these rare populations that exist, and those that can then start infecting everything, causing a spike. But it clearly doesn't happen all the time. Hmm. I wonder if you could if you could like include some you know, CRISPR knockout of, of the, 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 the viral sequence when you prepare the car, the cars and then the CAR T cells. Yeah, they're wondering then, that or just even a small molecule, right? Yeah. There's all other issues with it. Yeah, a small molecule also makes sense. But I wonder that if you, if you use a small molecule and then you prevent it from maybe spreading in culture, but you're still going to transfuse those cells that are uh, infuse those cells that are, are uh, that even a smaller amount. So you wonder if it then has an effect or not. Yeah, if in the end maybe those cells will get activated in vivo and they're still going to do the same thing. Um, yeah. Well, I guess viral load, it would be still fewer cells. Much lower, right? I think that's the theory. Okay. That's quite, um, yeah. This, I guess I'm not surprised. I never thought about it, but I'm not surprised. Uh, the activation of these viruses is, you know, it's, it's a known phenomenon that it could happen. All right. Yeah, I did a CAR T cell therapy today. You did. Yes. I'm very proud of you. You know, cell therapy is uh, a very uh, promising area of study. I hope you appreciate them. I do. I do. Sometimes. So much. All right. Um, so for my first paper of today, uh, I'm going to start with that very interesting um, thing is uh, is it, I think that the paper itself is kind of, it's not too long, but the author list is really, really long. <laughs> so it is um, uh, the first uh, authors uh, is Tom Le Voyer from uh, the INSERM, uh, the Institute for Immunology, Institute for Immunology INSERM in Paris uh, and the Paris uh, Cité University. And there's a lot of other uh, authors, uh, but I guess the corresponding authors are uh, Jean-Laurent Casanova from the same uh, institute in Paris and Anne Poel as well. Um, and in this, in this paper, I, I think it's really interesting because they bring up a subject that I didn't know uh, was, was, I don't think I've really known much about, is the fact that 
um, there are these autoantibodies against type 1 interference that in humans can actually uh, predispose uh, patients towards viral infections, and un- un- unsurprisingly, right? So the paper is called Autoantibodies Against Type 1 Interference in Humans with Alternative NF-kappa-B Pathway Deficiency. And so they they basically, what we need to know to understand what they did is the fact that, as I mentioned, auto autoantibodies neutralizing that neutralize type 1 interference are known, uh, and they're found in patients, uh, particularly with uh, lupus uh, or thymoma or other uh, autoimmune diseases that uh, are related to uh, incomplete tolerance in the thymus. And um, also, of course, some people get interferon type 1 treatment, so they have these antibodies uh, clinic- uh, therapeutically. Um, and usually this is a silent, so usually people didn't really realize what kind of effects that had on on, on the patients. Uh, and maybe it's just a consequence to uh, of a dysregulated immune system that recognizes type one interference and then generates antibodies against them because there's no tolerance generated uh, for them in the thymus. Um, but they realized that uh, in the case of now of COVID, actually, this seems to really be a factor that underlies a lot of the have very severe pneumonia cases, uh, and it it became apparent that many pneumonias and viral infections have um, uh, similarly to er- uh, errors in type 1 immunity, these patients with uh, the interferon type 1 autoantibodies actually have a, a higher uh, predisposition to uh, developing severe disease. Um, and so there's certain examples of, of uh, 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 diseases such as APS1, in which you have some really... Uh, reduce expression of a very important uh, medullar, uh, thymus medullar cell uh, element called AIR. So this is this this is a, a transcription factor that regulates the expression of all of these auto antigens in the, in the thymus so that T cells can be properly trained on them. Uh, so if you don't have expression of AIR, then you don't have cells being tolerogenic or you have a, if you have a reduction in this expression, then T cells don't get exposed to all of your autoantibodies and then the chances of you having autoimmunity are very much increased. And uh, the expression of this gene is controlled by the uh, non-canonical NFB, uh, NF-kappa-B pathway. Uh, so it's one of the, one of the uh, known uh, downstream elements. And so they in, the, in this paper, they kind of make a connection between this pathway being controlled, this, this gene being controlled by the non-canonical NF-kappa-B pathway and with patients that actually have, um, that have deficiencies in this pathway. Because they find that in the case of COVID, uh, patients with, uh, there's different types of, of, of different parts of the NF-kappa-B pathway, the non-canonical that can be uh, affected. But in principle, there are certain uh, phenotypes that are associated with an increased um, susceptibility to COVID and other viral infection. So what they see is that these patients that have uh, this NF-kappa-B, uh, non-canonical NF-kappa-B pathway uh, inborn errors, they are they actually also show interferon uh, type 1 uh, specific anti autoantibodies against me- most of the uh, interferon alpha 
and other ones differ on Omega. Uh, is that Omega? Yes, I think it's Omega that I actually was not very familiar with. Uh, some less frequently differ on Beta, uh, and that this uh, is fairly common amongst this 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 patient. And they so they look into uh, um, these deficiency. Uh, they they study the different pathways that are associated, and they find that uh, in fact um, this this deficient this this generation of of this interferon specific antibodies occurs because there is a in, in central patients that have uh, specific um, combinations of of errors. There is a much lower expression of air of this uh, transcription factor, which uh, which is in some way uh, uh, it mimics other air deficiencies and that impairs the maturation of particularly these uh, medullary uh, thymic epithelial cells, uh, which are the ones presenting these antigens. And this is uh, a reason, this underlies in principle the production of these uh, antibodies against type one interference. What is interesting, and I don't quite, quite understand how this works, is that these patients, unlike other patients that have kind of proper air deficiency, like this polyendocrinopathy syndrome type 1, APS1, they also have uh, antibodies that neutralize type 1 interference, but then they have other antibodies against different tissues. So they, they have a more general kind of deficiency. But this particular patient with NF-kappa-B pathway deficiency actually is quite narrow. They most of the, the the things that they can recognize are the antibodies. The major target seems to be this type one interference, um, uh, which I find very interesting. But they do see. So what they show is that when it comes to the um, the uh, anatomy of the thymus, and there's just, they have they have a lot of kind of issues with the proper development of the thymus uh, because of this. But and so this is how they they make this connection between. Having this NF kappa beta uh, non canonical signaling deficiencies, which in, it's not so severe if it wasn't because you have it directly affects the expression of air in the thymus, and therefore the proper training of your T cells against your self antigens. And that this causes the production of these interference specific antibodies that then in turn uh, increase your susceptibility to viral infections such as COVID. Hmm. I mean, we were weren't we talking recently about how important thymus is that is underappreciated. Yeah, I know the the T cell school very important. T cell school. I also I think it's funny that um well I guess that they can be such specific phenotypes like this just a large amount of interferon specific but they don't have like disseminated autoimmunity like you see in other cases. So that's kind of that's kind of curious. Well, next up on my end, I guess we'll talk a little more about other types of autoimmunity or immune problems, and we're going to talk about rheumatoid arthritis. So this is also in nature, feeling natural today, also November 8th. A deconstruction of rheumatoid arthritis synovium defines inflammatory subtypes. First author is Fan Zhang, last author is Somyai Rechuchadri, and it is kind of a mapping or the synovium, that's the fluid in your joints, during uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And so they look at people with disease flares, and they do kind of a single-cell RNA-seq, but with also some flow cytometry for cell markers on top, 
and come up with what they call a cell type abundance phenotypes. And they come up with a whole bunch of different ones, which I would like to thank them for appropriately naming that aren't insane. It's basically based on the cell types in there. So there's the F one for fibroblast dominant. Uh, and so they come up with different six major cell types um, markers. And so they come up with uh, endothelial, fibroblast, and myeloid cell, EFM, fibroblast alone, F, T cell and fibroblast, TF, T and B cell, TB, T and myeloid cells, T and M, and myeloid cells, M. And so they map all these, and they basically show that these patterns hold, that they correlate with histological findings as well. So if you do histological immunofluorescence, you see the same markers that you do by sequencing. So basically saying, hey, you don't need histology anymore. You can just take some fluid and sequence it and figure out what's in there too. So that's really cool to see. Um, and then they use this to create a cell atlas of what's going on. But what they find is, uh, and that these have different specific cell states and cell activation. You're like, okay, well, why is this in nature? They basically just did a, you know, an RNA-seq mapping. Um, and they do associate with histology and all that, but they don't associate our, the different groups are independent of clinical markers. Um, but they see that what each type has does map to known clinical manifestations of different types of patients. And here's the big thing. So the disease you have, what you have doesn't map, but what does map is it can predict your response to treatments. So they found that, you know, the F type had the poorest response to, to um, a specific set of treatments um, with the biologic treatments in this paper. And so that's the big thing, right? So they found that you can predict your response based on what you start with and that people do shift types with treatment or as they get better but that some of them predict response. So this then becomes a drug response predictor that could be linked to specific drugs with these cell types. And it's a pretty easy test, right? Because you just take aspiration and synovium, measure it, and you can figure out how a patient might do. And that's why it's in nature. Because I was sitting there reading like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> it doesn't correlate with clinical symptoms, doesn't correlate with clinical this or that. You know, these markers that are high in T cells have high, you know, amounts of A or B. It all makes sense, right? But the markers are good markers, essentially what they showed. Oh, wait, it predicts clinical response. <laughs> it's like the, the second to last paragraph of the results. I'm like, ah, buried the lead there a little bit. All right. Yeah, it's always, I mean, it's always, I was always good to find things that 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 relate to uh, clinical response, isn't it? Yeah, no, it was really neat to see. Okay, so for the last uh, paper of, of today, I, I, I just want to. This is a, a in a way a follow up from a paper from a previous episode in which I was uh, talking about T Rex in uh, exercise in muscles and how exercise induces T Rex in muscle. And I thought I had to admit this is a little bit older than I usually uh, find my, my my papers, but I really wanted to talk about it. It's called Regulatory T cells shield muscle mitochondria from interfering gamma mediated damage to promote the beneficial effects of exercise. It was published in Science Immunology, and the first author is uh, Kent Langston from the lab of Diane Mathis. Uh, she's uh, very well known in the field, and. 
kind of in a nutshell, it shows how important regulatory T cells that are, you know, resident in the muscle are for protecting the muscle from itself, basically. Exercise. Uh, it's a way it generates, you know, especially um, acute exercise, and in a way, is is generates little damage in your muscle um, and in the fibers. And we know that uh, we we have think we already seen in the case of pr- proper muscle damage that regulatory T cells uh, are very important for recovery after injury, uh, and they're you know after an injury happens, they're clonally expanded and they coordinate. Uh, the 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 transition from a pro-inflammatory to a more pro-repair, uh, pro-anti-inflammatory process, and so uh, in this in this in a study, what they look is uh, after um, they look that the in the case of uh, more uh, sustained long-term exercise that the presence of regulatory T cells in the muscle of these mice was very important to uh to to prevent kind of uh excessive inflammation but i think more interestingly in 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 those cases of long term uh, exercise that you see you know uh, if you exercise regularly then your muscles they gain a lot of uh, metabolic uh, properties and they become more resilient and they become they perform better long term and they show in this paper that the regulatory T cells and the function of the regulatory T cells is very important for this uh, transition towards a higher, better performing muscle. And um, they show that they have these models in which they can uh, knock out regulatory T cells. And, and, and this really prevents the muscle from uh, improving the, the performance throughout the weeks of, 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 uh, training when they, in which they have the mice running, you know, in the little, in the little wheels. Um, so, uh, this, I think what's very interesting is that it does really affect the, the capacity of, of, of the cells to, to, uh, improve their metabolic, uh, uh, profile towards a more, you know, uh, less more, um, phosphorylation. So to more efficient use of the, of the energy. Um, and in, they show that this is in part, um, mediated the fact that regulatory T cells are helping the muscle survive this is regulated by reducing the effect of particular interferon gamma uh, produced uh, during uh, exercise by uh, certain immune systems, the immune cells that are recruited or proliferate under those conditions. And they show that the function of regulatory T cells uh, in part is through preventing the excessive signaling from um, interferon gamma, and that this really helps the cell, the muscles cells, uh, improve their, their metabolism and their, so their, their, their adaptation to exercise and that the regulatory T cells are protecting the muscles also in the long term and throughout training. I thought it was, was so cool because they see, you know, even in, they can show that in, in, in this mouse models, if you have, if you, if you knock out the T-Rex, uh, you really see that that uh, that gain of performance that the mice receive after you know weeks of of training it's pretty much ablated, um, and uh, they can the, the the mice don't 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 gain uh, the the performance in, uh, increase in the same way. So basically, as I said, this is, seems to be mediated by interferon gamma signaling on the muscle cells, um, and this really shows that 
the, the, the regulatory TSOs can protect and really reduce the impact of the inflammation up upon exercise. So they're important for being swole, which is what you had pointed out before. And now they're just even important to more people. Yeah. I mean, I think we already, I think it was pretty clear that injury in case of like stroke or particular injuries, we know that T-Rex are very important, but this is like for normal, the normal benefits of exercise in the muscle. This is, this is very specific to the... Yeah, that's what's so cool about it. Yeah. Yeah. To 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 the the, the proper... Uh, recovery of the muscle after exercise and the, you know um the, the the changes in the mitochondrial metabolism in the muscle uh so that's very which is very important for for muscle uh performance and that interferon uh, gamma is negatively affects this and then regulatory diesels are protecting the um and it's cool because they do you know experiments usually interferon gamma antibodies and they show that that's that's how they kind of show this this relationship with this particular cytokine they show that if you if you are exercising mice and you give them interferon gamma like they do worse so it really seems to be mediated by interferon gamma production fascinating it really is you know underappreciating the link between muscles and the immune system and we're going to get similarly understanding the link between the vasculature and the immune system in it with Dr. Angela Kusimbe at the University of Oxford. But before we get to that, are like us, are you attending an upcoming cell or gene therapy conference? Enter to win of the three $500 US awards from Stem Cell Technologies towards your conference travel registration fee. Contest closes on December 15th of 2023 and is open to residents of select countries only. Full eligibility rules can be found on the registration form. Visit www.stemcell.com CTG award to learn more. Now for the second part of the podcast, we are joined by Dr. Anjali Kusumbe. She is group leader and director of the Oxford Tissue Imaging Center at the University of Oxford. And her lab uh, does very interesting work uh, examining vascular diversity, vascular, vascular changing, and using some very fancy microscopy uh, techniques. Uh, so we're very interested uh, to talk to you today about uh, how do we look into vasculature such as lymph or other kinds of spatial arrangements that I don't think we we think about enough. So thank you. Welcome to the uh, Immunology Podcast, uh, Dr. Kusumbe. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. And I'm truly honored to be here. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the questions. Thank you for being here. All right, Brenda, I'm going to go first this time because it's microscopy. So uh, I'm a big microscopy nerd, too. I used to do single molecule stuff back in the day. So I know you, you've done some really cool techniques on whole tissue imaging, getting deeper into tissue, clearing it, being able to get down past the surface, all of that. So could you, for those who may not be familiar with your work, but who have used a Zeiss or another microscope in the past that's similar, kind of describe the the basics of your your magical techniques for doing cool microscopy stuff. Yeah, so basically what my lab is using is the light sheet microscopy. Uh, the, the thing with the light sheet microscopy is that uh, here we could image uh, in the, as it says, light sheet. So it's the uh, sheets of the uh, where, where we are imaging. And the the, the, the interesting thing about this is that we can, see the whole tissue so unlike uh, the confocal microscope which has a limitation certain limitation that we can just image a thick section 
uh, with a light sheet microscope, we can see a whole bone, an intact bone, a whole um, lymph node or a whole spleen or a whole thymus, but also a whole cleared mouse. So basically one can clear. So basically what is required is the optical clearing is required. So what we do is when we have to image for the light sheet microscopy, we have to basically clear the whole organ. And towards this, we have developed certain techniques where it can make the tissues and even the whole mouse transparent. So basic, and then uh, along with this, when we are clearing the tissues, we are also labeling them with the antibodies, with certain markers. So if we have to look at the immune cells, the B cells, we can use that specific markers. Otherwise, uh, the other option is to depend on the reporter mice. But there, uh, this is what we are not doing because then it is very limited what we can do here with uh, what we look at with the immunolabeling because we can then look at either it's a vasculature, but how these vascular cells interact with the immune cells, which is what my lab is specifically interested in and how this interaction then change during aging. And to so basically we are not depending on the reporter mice. We can look at these interactions, not only in the soft tissues, but in the skeletal system, and that is more difficult because uh, the bone is calcified and we can decal uh, we decalcify it. We have developed methods where we can quickly decalcify it. So all our methods are quite rapid. So within 3.5 days, we can actually decalcify the mouse bones, do the immunostainings for any of the markers. It could be a hematopoietic stem cell or immune cell or the vascular cell, and then image it. So this is what we are currently doing. So for those that don't know, what does it, uh, maybe you can give a quick explanation of what does it mean to have a light, light sheet imaging? Uh, how is it different from other types of, of imaging? And then I think we can talk a little bit about one of, one of your latest publications, which you're looking in, I guess, the transparent bones at the 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 lymph the lymphatic system yeah. within but let's start with it start to understand what do you mean with this technique yeah so with the light sheet imaging we are basically uh the technique uh, with the with the layman's language would be it is like we are image it allows us to image in the dual direction uh, un uh unlike a confocal which is a laser focused a beam focused uh so here we could image throughout the whole organ so that is one so you and it is very rapid, so it is very fast. Uh, so uh, the, the speed is the another advantage where we can re really look. Of course, we have to deal with a very huge data size with it. And the another thing is uh, with the light sheet imaging as such is definitely it required the clearing of the tissues, but that is also was required with the, the confocal imaging. But the, uh, another advantage of the light sheet imaging is that it doesn't damage the tissue. So one can even do the live imaging so if i have to image a live embryo that is possible to do it unlike uh, using uh, other microscopes where it would uh, the where, where where there is a damage to the uh, to the cells and because it's rapid it's not damaging the cells do you use also a light sources of a kind of a large uh, wavelength uh, and that's how you don't damage the, the tissues is that similar to i think two photon microscopy yeah, so it's two photon. It's uh, I mean, we'd use we can use different wavelengths as we can do the immunostaining. Mm -hmm. So there is uh, 
the difference between them is that you know with the two photon microscopy you are specifically with the light sheet because basically you are imaging the whole as a sheet mm -hmm. unlike unlike in a uh, uh, unlike pointing to a specific uh, uh, like two photon or one photon or three photon here you are imaging as sheets mm -hmm. so that is uh, the the thing and it is much more gentler kind of imaging so it is not damaging the tissue if it is a uh, if it is a live tissue if it is a if it is a embryo so basically people also use light sheet microscopy to image a zebrafish embryo a zebrafish embryo or uh, other transparent um, animal models because if they are they have the reporter they can be imaged all right so i i thought it was very interesting you 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 have a recent uh publication from your group uh in cell uh in which you will actually look using this uh this this bones i guess this technique to to remove the the, the calcify the bones you actually looked into the structure of the bones and you found that there are lymphatic vessels within the bone that we weren't, I don't think we really knew they were there. And they actually have uh, play a role in, in regeneration of, of hematopoietic uh, cells. So what, maybe, can we talk a little bit about that? Were you surprised? How surprised were you that you saw these vessels inside the bones? Yeah, we were surprised. I was surprised and it was like, uh, uh, you know, once uh like it took a lot of time to believe that for myself because whether it's an artifact because we, first we actually did the immunolabeling and since the method was new although i did uh, i was very convinced about our method but still it took a lot of time and i got it to be seen by multiple people in my lab before i can believe it because you know it was not uh, so so it did take to took some time for me to get convinced that okay they are really there the reason other reason also being that they are in the healthy bones they are really less and they are present in the heart part of the bone only and only one or two are there within the bone marrow so the scarcity of it is was the also the other thing when in the healthy bone they are present but they are present in very less numbers very less density which was also we had to do and this is why we could only identify through um, these specific methods where we can do the high resolution imaging. So how are you guys clearing the tissues? Because I've, I've done some tissue imaging, but well, confocal scans, so much smaller sections, but it was always a pain to clear things. And I can only imagine clearing even larger things. Okay. Yeah. So basically, yes, if uh, to be like, uh, you know, when few years back I started it, I initially, I mean, I, as, as such, I have a background, even as a postdoc to look at the thick slices of the bone where we were not clearing, but just sectioning it, putting under the microscope. And, you know, a lot of these things, when I started with looking at um, uh, the bones uh, previously as a postdoc versus now, is like now we were doing the whole intact bones or the whole organs and uh and i did try a lot of existing protocols specifically with the bone none of the protocols like cubic or other they were uh, cubic depends a lot on the reporter mouse for, for for example but there are a lot of other protocols which are reported and we did had a very hard time and then we could 
you know, clear it with specific methods. And here what we have combined is like um, uh, a short decalcification step. And we have also put in uh, urea steps where and urea helps with antigen retrieval. So there are a lot of it's a kind of a combination of, uh, you know, when I used to section the bone and do the things versus uh, whole it, it combines this whole clearing amount again with the immunolabeling decalcification antigen retrieval so it is all going together that is the reason we could actually immunolabel it not only clear it so there are protocols uh, which are existing which allows clearing of the bone and that clearing is quite good so that was not a problem if I have to go ahead and use a protocol which was existing when we started. But then one has to depend on the reporter mouse because it is not allowing us to, uh, it was not allowing us to basically uh, immunolabel. And here where it is comes from, because immunolabeling would require proper decalcification because when we use EDTA, for decalcification, it affects the antigenicity, like it affects, sorry, it affects the epitopes and then the antibody do not bind. So there is a lot of steps into it, which requires antigen retrieval and so on. And this is kind of combining a immunohistochemistry with the tissue clearing, uh, specifically for the bone, which is very complicated. And then it's Basically, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, there are tips and tricks combined from different methods to work in one method in a way that each thing is compatible with each other and we are not interrupting with any steps. That sounds like quite a complex procedure. Uh, I must have taken a lot of optimization to to get it right uh, at some point. Going back a little bit to what do you do with these techniques and what kind of uh, questions you can answer. You also uh, related to the work that you did on the lymph uh, lymph uh, vessels in the in the bone. You you have a lot of interest on understanding the effect of aging on 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 vessels and and and, and kind of organ specific mm-hmm. uh, vasculature uh, and how it how age modifies it. So maybe can you tell us a little bit about. What do we know about uh, why? Why are you looking into the the vasculature? Well, why 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 should we care about that? And what are the effects yes. of age uh, that have that age has on these uh, structures? Yeah, so that's I think so the very good question, and this is what uh, like yeah we are interested in why vasculature? Why one has to look at vasculature and in bone, for example? So uh, I mean, all these immune cells are produced in bone, but uh, if we think about uh, more with the immunological point or the immunological, as an immunologist perspective, most of the time these bones are flushed, used to culture the macrophages or, you know, isolate a specific cell type or study the bone marrow chimeras. But when we talk about the spatial information, I think so that is where it is lacking. Where are these immune cells lying, which are how they are produced when they are like, you know, when the hematopoietic stem cell is differentiating into a lymphoid progenitors versus erythroid erythroid progenitors. Where are these lymphoid progenitors present? What, how it changes with age? And why do we care about vasculature? Because one is that uh, there are many studies, like including ours, we have shown that vasculature plays a critical role as a niche 
for the hematopoietic stem cells, but also other cells. And if lot of stem and progenitor cells in many of the tissues have been identified to be lying in proximity of the vasculature. Not only they are just proximity, they have there is a signaling between them. They, and with this signaling, they are uh, like regulating the behavior of these stem and progenitor cells, but also immune cells. So, for example, there are different niches where the for uh, the lymphatic vessels interact with macrophages, and this interaction is both ways, where the lymphatic vessels provide signals for the macrophages. So, those kind of interaction, and why we are interested in aging. So, what we have seen is as the bone age vasculature is driving the aging of the bone. So basically the density of the bone is declining with age. We know this. We as we go grow old, our bones are brittle. And this is and we have seen that this is because it is happening because we are losing vasculature, a certain type of vascular cells. And similarly, what we are now looking at and we have uh, how it these changes are impacting the immune cells because and this is what we have we have i mean this is something uh, which is ongoing in the lab we see that as the vasculature age and these changes in the vascular cells is driving the changes in the immune cells and this could have lot of relevance in terms of how during aging, an aged individual uh, respond to infection, respond to, you know, um, inflammation. So but those, because aged micro, bone marrow micro environment is also supposed to be highly uh, inflamed, like compared to the young. So basically, these are the questions which we are looking at, how, how the vascular changes the, are driving the change in the surrounding cell specifically the immune cell and how then this would impact the response of an elderly to the infection. Yeah, clearly you made, you made a good point on why studying vasculature is important. Uh, and what do we see as, as aging, right? That, that this would naturally affect the, is a way in which aging affects the immune system and the things, I guess, then this extends to, well, the, 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 um, the supply of, of immune cells from the bone marrow and, of course, the circulation and, and the kind of signals that these cells get as they are moving around. Here, I have to say one thing. So what my lab is doing is like also find out what is the chicken and egg, mm, which is a kind of right. like what comes first. Yeah. So is it the immune changes or the vascular changes? And towards this, we are uh, now looking into this, you know, specific um, genetic models like we are inducing time specific vascular changes and looking at how these changes are then driving changes in the immune cells and which so to identify okay whether it's the vasculature which is driving the immune cells changing or it is just a whole lot of changes which is happening because when we talk about vasculature it could be oxygen it could be nutrients it could be so many things so we do and then it could be difficult to understand what exactly happened first. So that's why we are basically trying to look at specific molecules which we have identified uh, and then uh, look at how this is affecting the signaling between the immune cell and the uh, vascular cell rather than looking the whole. And then we are specifically looking at specific vascular subtypes. Right. 
So any big things you've found so far you can share, kind of the top line things? So we got vasculature as a, as a bed for hematopoietic stem cells. It seems to regulate immune cells. You're looking in the bone. What's it doing? That is something, uh, I mean, we are in the process of publishing and I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I guess this would be something which would be, uh, I mean, I guess for this open kind of platform to share that information would not, would be put a bit too early to give the... Oh no, well, can't we have the, you know, the exclusive sneak peek? No, that's okay. We understand. When I think of uh, vasculature and a little bit taken off from what you said, um, I think, well, if you're with age, uh, you're going to have, you, you, you mentioned, you don't know what comes first is the inflammation is the changes in the vasculature, whether, but we know, for example, you know, I think, well, vasculature, we know when we get older, for example, we probably lose, uh, uh we lose, uh, what's the word, uh, elasticity, we, we lose the structure. So maybe they don't provide the kind of net that they used to, and the cells don't move so well, maybe that generates uh, some changes in the kind of adhesive adhesion molecules that are there. So the leukocytes might have issues moving around if the vasculature is not providing the right signals or if the bone marrow, there's cells that are not uh, proliferating anymore because you're old and they're you know, starting to have issues, you know, keeping up with the numbers. And I guess that's also another uh, way in which you will stop supporting a proper immune system. Yeah. So yeah, this is something. Uh, I mean, uh, that that that's true. I mean, we lose the elasticity of the vasculature. I mean, it was it has been quoted long back by a British surgeon that man is as old as his arteries. So it was, I think, so it was something like nineteen. I know, not sorry, nineteen. It was seventeen something. It was uh, like that back. It was quoted uh, that uh, man is as old as his arteries. So definitely, that is known, but. What is not known is uh, through and which is uh, kind and there is uh, this is one of the hot topic of research in the vascular biology, how the vascular age, because we don't know how the capillaries age, how because, you know, when we talk about vessels previously, it was like, okay these big vessels, arteries, but now we don't know that. No, it's not about just arteries and uh, the vessels are not just a transport network supplying oxygen and nutrients they are much more where i where, where i say that they are forming a niche for immune cell they can form a niche for hematopoietic stem cells they interact they signal there is an active signaling going on between these cell types so that is where it is and then also now which is uh, we know with many of uh, the recent the research with the last uh, five years or 10 years is that the vasculature is organ specific. So the vasculature of bone and vasculature of uh, heart is not similar. They are different, not only so because when I say that they are not tubes, so this is also where it is. So they are they are uh, in a form that they can help and support that organ. So in bone, we have a lot of sinusoidal network of vessels. But now we have described and we have uh, identified a new capillaries in the bone, which are uh, called as type H capillaries. So basically, there are new vessel subtypes being identified, which was not identified because people were not able to issues because. Uh, image it uh, to that and only the bigger so basically 
it's not only about uh, the changes in the oxygenation nutrient level or the elasticity but the changes in the signaling pathways and how these vessels interact with their neighboring cell and in bone this neighboring cell is diff but not only in bone but in many other organs it can be a immune cell a macrophage and that is that is where we are uh, seeing and how these signaling change with aging so how what are the what are the uh, mechanistic changes occurring with aging because that is helping us to identify specific molecules which is what i was talking about when i was talking about the bone and uh, aging and the vasculation and in the um, how it is affecting the uh, production of immune cell where we can identify specific molecule expressed by uh, the vascular subset which could be targeted and which could actually boost the capacity of uh, you know people to respond to infection so those kind of things could be done where um by understanding the mechanism understanding this sig signaling pathways between these two cell types the vasculature and the immune cells because uh, as i say i they are just not you know the transport tube where they are as they have been traditionally thought of that they are supplying oxygen and nutrients they are much more to it they are cells which actively engage and thereby regulate the behavior of these neighboring cell and and definitely lot of immune cells interact with uh, the vasculature uh, or the vasculature interact with immune cells in this way and this is this is what my lab is interested in and so a lot of experiments we start doing first in young mice and see that if we look at some of these uh, conditional uh, uh, knockout mice and see what is the phenotype and then we look at the aged mice all right well i think that's that's a good wrap up here but before we go we always like to learn a little bit about the person behind the science. And so we're going to do a little fill in the blank game here. All right. So the first one, when I am not conducting research, I am. Okay. When I'm not conducting uh, research, I am. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Baking, running, visiting friends. <laughs> um, watching movies. Any favorite? One, one recommendation for, for our listeners? One, just one. Oh, oh so I watch a lot of, uh, you know, this survival horror thriller movies like Saw. Oh, no. So I, I am. Saw it. All right. No, no, this is not yeah. the Halloween special. This is not the Halloween. Of... But Halloween, <laughs> Halloween is like, it's recent, isn't it? But yes, I'm I'm a fan of um, survival movies. So I'm 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 walking, watching literally all the survival movies. Yes. Awesome. Next question. All right. <laughs> if I could have one superpower, it would be. Oh, so uh, one superpower, yeah. So it would be like I, if you know, I come from India. So one superpower would be I can actually uh, remove all the poverty from India. All right, and last one, mm -hmm. I can't start the day without. Oh, knowing that all my family members are happy, like you know, if I just sometimes I call my mommy, call my you know my father or my brother and everyone is fine and i mean in in addition to my immediate family that's nice because if you're in the uk and you're calling india first thing in the morning it's already they're having lunch by that time <laughs> yeah so that's the correct time so yeah i mean of course immediate family everyone is fine then i'm quite happy yeah mm -hmm. all right 
Well, on that note, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It was very nice talking to you. I I will go, I know I will leave this conversation knowing that vessels are not just tubes through which cells go. So I think I learned a lot. I don't know what you think, Jason. I agree. I mean, my favorite set of interconnected tubes is the internet, but that's a that's a joke from a badly explained politician trying to explain the internet. So, you know, vasculature, much more important. Yes. All right. So thank you uh, again so much, uh, Anjali Kusumbe for, from Oxford for joining us at the Immunology Podcast and all the best with this upcoming mystery research. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Nice talking. Bye. This brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter, www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Podcaster or by email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.